Amen. If you would, turning your Bibles with me to 1 John again. We're continuing as we walk through this wonderful chapter. I hope you've picked up on it, why John is called the Apostle of Love. It's week after week. Seems to be a constant theme. It's not merely talk that he's concerned about. We should not just to tell each other that we love one another, but in practical, real ways, love that expresses itself and manifests itself in the life of a local church. You may remember 1 John chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he said, it's important. You need to love one another because that's part of God's command. We love one another. It's always been there. It's always been God's plan for his people, not just to love him, but to love one another. To show real love, practical concern, care for one another. Or you may remember 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he said, look, you need to love one another as Christians because that is evidence of the new birth. It's evidence you're part of a new creation. It's evidence that the work of God, his spirit, is at work in your hearts because you're loving one another. It's evident that Christ resides and his spirit has changed us from the inside out. So love one another. Do that. Remember Jesus told his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. So John, this is set home with John, and he's just pressing it in on this Christian congregation. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 16, we saw John argued, you, need, you should love each other because that's God's nature. He is love. And he's demonstrated that love by giving his own son for us. So he's just been piling up these arguments uh, to love one another. And so today, if you would, turn with me to chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 20 and 21 as we finish this fourth chapter. Lord willing. Verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see, uh, I'm sorry, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. So he's been pressing this home. Love one another. Love one another. And he's... One of the reasons why he has to keep pressing this home is because, in one sense, loving family is a very easy thing to do. On another hand, it's one of the hardest things to do. It's, in fact, it's easier to say that you do it than it is actually to do it. It's easier to talk about it than actually live it out. But it's important that we live it out. And it's important. So John has been going back time and again. Hey, I, this is going to be a challenge in your lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a difficult thing. But love one another. Love one another. 
true love to God is always accompanied by a true love for his people. True love for God means that you will have a true love for Christian brothers and sisters. John tells us here in verse 20 that the latter tests the former. So if you claim to love God, that's proven by your love for one another. it, It displays it. It proves our claims that we love one of God love God when we love one another. So let's go back. What's the context? What's the context of this book? So if you've been here with us for these months as we've been walking through it, you remember the context is this. There are false teachers in this church. And these false teachers, they've been teaching, one, that they're without sin. These Gnostics, that, that they have no sin. Or that the sin they commit doesn't really matter because their sin that they commit is in the body, and the body doesn't matter. It's only the spirit stuff that matters, and so I'm spi- my spirit is sinless before God. Therefore, I can live however I want and be considered sinlessly perfect. And these false teachers have misled people in the congregation. Some of the people in this congregation have followed along with these false teachers, and it's divided the congregation. And so they had this sense of, we've got a higher knowledge. We've got secret knowledge that everybody else doesn't have. We know things that even the apostles didn't know. So there are also these ordinary Christians in our church so it was, they were dividing it into the haves and the have-nots. We who have this secret knowledge, we who have this knowledge to live sinlessly, and those who don't have it. It was dividing it. So it was like super-Christian, ordinary Christian. And it brought division in the congregation. And there were people who were following this teaching. And it was, it was a division. It was dividing the church. It was creating schism. It was, it was creating confusion. They're looking down upon those who continue to believe what John and the other apostles taught and preached. And so John is writing here and he says, look, I don't care. I don't care that they claim to know God. When they relate to the brothers and sisters in Christ like this, it proves that they do not know the God that they claim to know. But John's specific application has broad universal application as well. Not only for that congregation, but for this congregation. And so, I just want us to walk through these two verses. I want us to see what it is that John says, and then I want us to apply what he says in this congregation. So, first sentence there, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So, pretty clear, right? Straightforward. Saying that you love God, but you lack a love for brothers and sisters in Christ, that shows your hypocrisy. It shows that you do not really love God. It reveals a hypocrisy in our confession. 
We're not telling the truth. John's very blunt, right? You're a liar. That's what he says. We lie if that's what we say. If so, if you say you love God, but you don't love these brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a liar. It's vis- visible evidence that you love God. Did you know that? The way you love one another, that's visible evidence that you love God. It doesn't matter. Your radio station is K-Love. That's not the evidence. It doesn't matter if your house has beautiful paintings with Bible verses on them. What displays your love for God is its evidence here in your love one for another. Among Christians particularly in a local church. And it's not an emotional thing that he's talking about, right? So John is not saying, oh, when I get near uh, Dan Terry, I just get warm fuzzies. That's not what he's talking about, okay? That is not what he's talking about. When he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm not seething with hatred towards any of the people sitting around my pew. So this, this passage has nothing to do with me. Uh, you're wrong. It's got lots to do with you. Hate, in typical Jewish manner, is an emotional term that's applied to practical issues. So, in this case, to hate is to fail to show Practical love, tangible love, uh, showing love in a tangible way for other people. In the case of these false teachers, they were showing a lack of love. How? By dividing the church, by separating the church into haves and have-nots. John's calling us as believers to show love, the love that we have, one for another, in tangible, practical ways. That's what he's calling for. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul walks through, and he talks, it's that love chapter where he talks through. It's a good thing to read here. So what would this look like in a local church to love one another? Well, what's Paul's description of love? He says love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. So how do we love one another here in a local congregation? Well, it means we have to be patient with one another. It means we have to be kind one to another. It means we do not envy one another. Paul says, uh, love does not brag. It's not arrogant. So there's no room for love and pride in the same heart. All right? Lo- pride is the enemy of love. It's, it's not an expression of love. So love does not brag. It's not arrogant. So when we deal one with another, if we love one another, we do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We ought to consider other people more important than ourselves. Love does not act, Paul says, unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love puts others first. It seeks their best interest at our own cost. So that's how Christian love one another. That's what it looks like for a Christian church to love one another. Love is not easily provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. 
Now, friends, in a local church, you will suffer many wrongs. Great wrongs, painful wrongs. And Paul says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does that mean I shouldn't take it into account? Yes. Ouch. That's hard. It hurts. It's a hard thing to do. It's an easy thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to do. It's one thing to say, I love them. Uh, yeah, I, would, I just love them, and I'll continue to love them. But then when a wrong comes in, it starts to become hard to do. Difficult. Why do you think John keeps coming back to this over and over and over? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. What do we encourage one another in? Do we rejoice with one another in righteousness, in truth, or do we rejoice with one another in unrighteousness? Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 13, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love sticks with it. <laughs> Is that what's evident? Do we display love one for another in that way? Because that's the kind of love that John is calling us to in the life of a local church. That. And there are unique challenges. You know, it's unique. there are unique challenges in every family, right? Your family has your unique challenges. My family has our unique challenges. And... There are both easy things and hard things in a family. In one way, in one sense, it is the easiest thing in the world to love your family. It's second nature. In other times, it's the hardest thing in the world to do is to love your family. First off, you don't choose your family. That's, that, that, that's a good place to begin. You don't choose. So when you get married, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, all the cousins, you don't pick them. But they're your family now. That's part of it. You, you, you get that. And so there's a, there's a wonderful part about that, that we don't get to pick them. Uh, but there's hard things there too. Always, it was precious to me when our kids were young and we'd go to Virginia and they would get to see their cousins. They never got to hang. They didn't hang out with their cousins. They didn't run around with their cousins all year. But when they got back together, boom, they just pick up one with another Never miss a beat. It was marvelous to see. But they didn't have a choice because they're their cousins. They didn't pick them. It's just who they are. There's this natural love. There's an affinity. Uh, uh, just the fact that we're cousins, that's the only thing we have in common is that we're family. It was not that, oh, we share so much in common of external things. That's not what it was. It was just the fact that we're kin. And there should be a sense of that here. That's my brother. That's my sister. Therefore, I love them. But it can be a hard thing, too. There is no hurt like the hurt that is administered in a family. So there's no wounds that are deep is when a family member wounds you. Pain is dished out in families in deep measure. 
To love one another in that context is very hard, very difficult. It's a challenge. So John says you can talk about loving God all you want, but if you can't love the family of God, don't tell me anything about loving God. Because our deeds reveal what our hearts are really like. We do what we are. In this case, real love to God shows itself tangibly in our actions, in loving, caring, showing concern, one for another. Can that be faked? Yeah, it could be faked. But if it's not there at all, you know absolutely for a sure thing. You can't say you love God and not love his people. If you claim to love God, you don't love his people. It's showing the hypocrisy of your claim to love God. Because it's impossible. The second part of verse 20. It's impossible to love the invisible God, but not love the, the visible Christian. Christians we can see every day. I can see you and uh, touch you. I can talk to you. I can have you to my home. So he gets even more specific, doesn't he? The, the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So it's impossible. It's impossible for you to love the invisible God when you can't love the visible saints. The person who has no love for fellow Christians cannot be truthful in their claims to love God Almighty. So this is the third time that he's laid out a serious lie, black lie. Now, I know, kids, there are no white lies, but I know that. But this is the third time that John has laid out some serious lies, and I'm going to call them black lies, just to irritate, maybe. But no, no other way to describe it. Three times he's come. And that's important. Remember the first time we saw he talks about people lying. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, and then 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. The claim there was that I can walk with God and I can live in disobedience, so I can, I can talk about uh, loving a holy God, but I can live an immoral life. And he says, no, no, if that's your case, you're lying. It's nothing, you can't do it. That's a moral lie. You, you can't say you love a holy God and continue to walk, live an immoral life. You can't do it. Second lie in this book that we see. He deals with 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He says, you cannot know the Father and deny his Son. So there's this doctrinal lie. So you can't claim to know God, the God of the Bible, and deny what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You're, you're believing some other kind of God. It's not the Bible's God. You can't say, I believe God and God loves us, but I don't believe all this what he says about Jesus. That's a lie. It's a doctrinal lie. Third lie is this one, this relational lie. You can't say, I love God, but I don't love the brethren. Three lies. 
which is interesting, right? Because if you've been here, we've seen he's got three tests. Three tests for the genuineness of your Christian faith. Do you have a true Christianity or not? What were those tests? You remember? They were a moral test. Do we obey the word of God? There were a, it was a doctrinal test. Do we believe what the word says about Jesus? And there was a relational test. Do we love one another? So he's put these three tests, and they've been fill, filling this book. And with them, he's got these lies that people say. And so John attacks the moral lie. I can claim to know God and live an immoral life. He, he attacks the doctrinal lie. I can know God and deny what the Bible says about Jesus. He attacks the relational lie. I can, I can love God, but I don't have to love other Christians. If what a man does contradicts what he says, John says he's a hypocrite. He's not a believer. And that's important because God's commandment to Christians, God's commandment for his people from all time has always been this double love. Double love. You see it in verse 21. This commandment of double love. This is the commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So God's commandment, Christian, you, this is God's commandment to you. It's, it's a double-bladed edge, right? Double-bladed sword. Christians are to love God and love the brother. You are to love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. And your neighbor is yourself. That's how Jesus divided it up in the two. Where did he get that from? Sunday nights, we've been walking through the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments. We've seen it. The first table of the law, dealing with loving God. Second table of the law, dealing with loving others. It's always been God's, God's plan for his people to love him and to love one another. That's an obligation of every Christian. That's a divine command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not, well, you should love me, and you know what? You really should love those people too. No, no, it's not an option. Not an option for us. John Scott is right when he says, every claim to know God is a delusion if it's not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for the brethren. So let's apply that. Let's apply this truth. Four really big areas. We, we, could, we could spend the rest of the day doing this. But let's just take four areas and apply it. First area in our congregation, specifically. Christian marriages. How do you apply this? What's it look like? Well, the, a Christian marriage is a proving ground for love. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be pain in the context of a marriage. There's going to be difficult days. Even, even people who profess to be Christians can have bumpy marriages. But God has ordained this, 
that we would manifest in our love, our love to him should be manifest in the way we love our spouse. So if you're called into a Christian marriage, our love for God shows itself, how? In the way we love our spouse. That means the Christian marriage is a spiritual battleground. It's a battleground of faith. It's the soil, it's the garden it, it, for growth and grace and sanctification. These things take place in a marriage. One of the reasons here that a Christian marriage is so important is because it's a battleground for faith. It's a battleground for us to display that we love the Lord. So, I don't know where you are. You may, your marriage may be like this right now. And maybe you're trying to figure out for the 137th time, how are we going to make this thing work? Well, you remember, there are things that are more important than your happiness. More important than you being happy. This is a proving stage for love. This is a proving ground for love. It's a stage upon which your love for God is allowed to shine in a Christian marriage. All right? That's one big area. Christian marriages. Another area. Friendships. What, what do friendships look like in this congregation? So over the last decade, lots of new folks. New folks from all over the, all over the place. Right? So Arizona. We got folks. From, we got, man, I was, I think like four Families from California? I didn't know there were that many good people in California. <laughs> How about that? All over the place. New, new folks. And then we got some people, man, we got deep roots. I know them. We've known each other since we were this high. Our grandmothers used to go down to wash clothes together in the creek. We've, I mean, our families go way, 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 way back, right? And so that's, there's some challenges. There's challenges to what that looks like. One, if the basis of our friendships are only and fundamentally, on who, that we grew up in the same neighborhood, neighborhood, and our parents knew each other, our grandparents were friends, and we went to the same elementary school, the same high school, the same college, uh, we live in the same neighborhood, and that is who my friends are, then I'm going to have a challenge. And I need to press so that my Friendships are not just those areas of affinity and that I have in common, but that the gospel, the gospel, even in those friendships that I have, make the gospel more important than natural affinities, natural areas, natural commonalities. Let the greatest thing that we have in common be that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. All right? I mean, we've got Bull County Rebels here. We've got an admiral back there. We've got a briar hopper over here. I was, but I wasn't even here. I was in, I was a fighting blue. <laughs> we couldn't even come up with a mascot. 
But that is not where our deepest affinities are, right? Uh, no matter the things that we do have in common, that's not the bond that ties us together. It's Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's Christ. So that's a difficulty. On the other hand, you come in from California, or you come in from Arizona, or you come in from Virginia. When you come in, do not just look for people that like the things you like to like and look like you look like. The people that like the music that you like or books that you like to read. Don't just look for people that you are comfortable with. But you seek in the new relationships that are formed to make Jesus Christ the center of those relationships. That glorifying Jesus Christ is the great concern of our shared life together. That's our purpose. That's our main thing. To glorify God and enjoy him forever together. That's not nearly as good as John Piper says. But that's what... That's what we do. So, what's it look like? It means encouraging one another. Friend, be faithful in the Word. Have you been reading the Word? Oh, you need to get back in the reading Word. How's your Bible reading plan? Oh, you're struggling. That's, hey, I encourage, let's pick it up, do it again. I'm going to check on you this week. I haven't seen you in church in a month. I've missed you. Uh, I want you to be involved here. It means encouraging one another in those areas, right? Building one another up. Exhorting one another to love and good deeds. So, Scott had the announcement about Betty Cox and her family. You may not, you might be sitting there going, no, Betty Cox, what, I'm trying to remember, which one is Betty Cox? Here's an opportunity. Write her a card that your heart grieves over the loss of her daughter because it's always unnatural for parents to lose children. Show love, exhort, build one another up. It, uh, that's what friendship should look like. So John's words exhort us to this kind of thing. That if we are going to love one another, as his word says... If we're going to be a family, which is what a church should be, that means loving one another. Whether we've known each other for 35 years, we went to the same high school, we've got the same fifth cousins, or not. Third area, healing breaches. Because in most churches, there are divisions and there are difficulties. We'd be foolish to think that there aren't some here. Dissensions or tensions that grow among members. But we ought to be concerned and have a desire for, not only for the sake of Christian unity, but for the sake of expressing the love of God among us. That we seek to heal breaches. When there are divisions that rise among us. We do what we can to heal those, those breaks, whether that's in marriages or in friendships. 
other people in the congregation or those who are outside of the congregation, relationships that are uh, between believers, true believers. It is an expression of our love to God that we're manifesting that we do not let broken relationships settle and become the norm. I shared Wednesday night. Two women, when we were in Cincinnati, they had a falling out, and it was a real falling out, and it was real, really hurtful and really painful, and one has said, I don't want to be in the same room with that woman, and I'm not ever going back to church. I'm going to a different church, so I'm just leaving. I'm not saying goodbye to, I love all of the rest of y'all, but I ain't never going to see you again because I'm gone, okay? And so we had a powwow. And we were finally able to get both of these women to say, okay, I'll listen to them. And the one woman says, I was sinful and wrong. I should have not said the things I said. I should not have hurt you. That was wrong of me. Will you forgive me? Finally, yes. And the woman that had been wronged and was just leaving, we had to deal with that too. And she says, end of the day, that's not the way family does for each other. You don't just run off, never to see each other again. You don't just leave and not work through those difficulties. So when there is a breach, we have a duty, a responsibility to display the love of God in our hearts and see healing and that those breaches be mended. Fourth area, and this touches on all those other ones. This is why discipleship has to happen in this church. This, and I don't want to hear it. I've always heard it in every church I've been. The church has always been bad about discipleship. So I, I, I've lived from Missouri to Georgia to Ohio. Hey, guess what? Every church everywhere admits we have stunk. But it's not an excuse Discipleship has to happen in this church. If I'm involved in discipleship outside of my church, and I decide I'm going to commit myself to this group or knife or that kind of group, that's all good and, good and fine. But you know what? I get to choose who I want to be with. You don't get to do that right here. You don't get to choose your family here. Now, I get... You do get to choose whether or not you want to join a church. But everyone who comes here becomes part of the context of your Christian discipleship. Because we're all here together. And, and I've got no control over you. And you've got no control. So we're all in this together. And so I don't get to pick and choose who is in the context of my discipleship. We are all in this thing together. So how to deal with offenses how to encourage one another, even though we're very different from one another. How do we encourage one another? This is one of the reasons why a church is essential for Christian discipleship. This is part of body life together. Because God says, I'm going to grow you not where you're just like everybody else. I'm going to grow you in a context where everybody else is out of your control. You have to learn and grow and be mature among a group of people that you did not 
choose. And so, the, and that's wonderful, all right? Friendships are going to be struck up between people who have nothing else in common. A love is going to be manifested in relationships that we would have never had otherwise. Parts of your sin and vice will be put on display and dealt with in ways that never would have otherwise taken place. We will be more mature as believers because of this. Now, you can go, and men, you could go and find a group of five other men and meet with and have coffee. That's great, and there's, it's, it's encouraging, and that's a good thing to do. But it's not a substitute for the church. Why? Because we need to be different from one another. We need to be family in order to grow. Because that group, I can say, I'm not going back there. I, I can just, yeah, I'm tired of that. But here, can't just drop out. Can't just quit. There's a love. We have to learn to love. We, even when my feelings get hurt, I have to learn to love. I have to learn. I have, this is an opportunity here. This is where love begins, not ends. This is where it begins, and we grow in it. For our own good, for our own sanctification, for the sanctification of one another, and for God's glory. And so, let's pray that God would help us to love one another as John in the Bible here calls us to love. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you for thy mercy, thy grace. We're told, as Rob read, we can come boldly before your throne and find help in our time of need. We can find grace and help in our time of need. So, Lord, help us display our love for you in the way we love one another. Lord, keep us from being casual, uh, just passers-by one another, cordial Christians, but Lord, teach us to love through, uh, through, through all the easy benefits of caring for each other and through the difficulties and hardships of loving one another. Help us, O oh Lord. Because we confess in us there is no good thing and uh, we, are, we, can, we can be selfish to our core and so we couldn't do this if it were not the work of your Holy Spirit in us. And so would you change us and make us more like Christ? And we thank you that he is a merciful Savior who, who has saved us who were enemies. And we pray that those gospel truths would, would rest upon us that... Um, we who have been forgiven much would know how to forgive brothers and sisters in Christ now. That we think and treasure the, the love of God that has demonstrated his love towards us and sending his own son. Lord, let us demonstrate our love one for another for your glory. 
as a testimony of our love for you. Lord, I pray they're just for hurting hearts, even right now. Marriages that hurt and are cold for, for friendships that are non-existent. They used to be close, but now they're not. And apathy is set in. Lord, would you work in our hearts and if we say that we love you, let us seek to live that out. Even through hard areas. And would you bring healing and strength and hope. And as we engage in discipleship one with another, would you mature us so that when our Savior comes again, we will be found without spot and without wrinkle because of your work through Christ in our hearts. Lord, for those that don't know love, and they only know that they are your enemies, would you set their mind's eye and their heart upon Christ and let them see for the first time the beauty of Christ that would die for sinners. And may they leave the isolation of the world and know what it is to come into the family of God and the love that exists here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.